0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Don't Be Boring, Winning the Attention Game by
1: Don Watkins. Good morning. Okay, this is on. All right, so it, it occurred to me for the first time as I was flying in that this title might have set expectations pretty high, right? Like it's, you know, you have that friend who's like, you got to see this movie, it's going to be the most amazing thing and inevitably it disappoints. So I think let's take a moment lower our expectations, (laughs) and dive in. So I want you to think about uh, the list of, like, who are the most impactful, successful intellectuals in the world today. And it might be people like Paul Krugman, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, James Lindsay. And there should be an obvious question jumping out at us, like, why are there no objectivists on this list? And it can't be because we lack the talent. this week alone is, testifies that we have some of the best thinkers on the planet as part of this movement. And it cannot be an issue of charisma, because whatever you say about Paul Krugman and Sam Harris, <laughs> these guys are not oozing charisma. And you might think, well, look, our ideas are just really unpopular. Well, Ayn Rand's ideas were pretty unpopular, and she did okay. So there's something else going on. So let's get, try to get clear on the challenge and the problem that has to be solved to fill that list with objectivists. We're living in a world where people are bombarded by people competing for their attention. We're competing with the best communicators in the world. And it's worse than that, because whenever you're asking somebody to read something you've written or watch something that you've created, you're competing with everything else that they might do with that time. Think about that. Like for you guys to show up here, you had to think, yeah, seeing Don talk, that's better than sex, at least at the margin. <laughs> so it's it's a really hard problem, and so one question might be, well, like let's think about how did those people get on the list, and you might think about, um, you know, Jordan Peterson comes out and challenges uh, a bill about gender pronouns. Um, somebody like Sam Harris is challenging religion in a world that's quite religious. Uh, Somebody like James Lindsay becomes famous criticizing critical race theory as that kind of arises as the cause of the moment in the culture. And so you might think the solution is conflict and controversy. And I think there's an element of truth to that. But that can't be the whole story. I mean, if you think about somebody like Tyler Cowen, he's beloved by people across the political spectrum, the ideological spectrum. And then if you just think about objectivists, I don't think we lack controversy. So that can't be the full story. Well, I don't think I can, like, make this a big cliffhanger given the title of the talk, but I think that the solution really to cut through the noise is that you can't be boring. You have to be interesting. You have to know how to actually gain attention. And that's what we're going to talk about. So for those of you who don't know, I've been a professional intellectual for over 15 years. spent a lot of that time trying to build my own audience with better and worse uh, consequences. But my true passion, my personal mission, is I like helping other people who share my ideas and values build successful careers, particularly intellectual careers. And so a lot of the work that I've done and the content that I've created focuses on helping them think better, communicate better. And when I'm trying to help people, Part of what I try to boil down for them is, what does it mean to build a successful intellectual career? And I think it comes down to three main ingredients. You have to be helpful, credible, and visible. So helpful, like I said, that's most of what I focus on. How do you actually ensure that you have clarifying ideas and that you can share them in in, um, clarifying, value-oriented ways? And if you don't have that, you don't have anything, and this talk isn't for you. We have to actually have true ideas that can really help people achieve amazing lives. And then there's credibility, which is an issue, but it's actually pretty, it, um, pretty easy to solve. So you can achieve credibility through credentials, which is pretty straightforward. If you have a PhD in a subject, people regard you as somebody competent to talk about that subject. Through celebrity, and here I don't necessarily mean worldwide fame, but like just being well-known in your industry, that is gonna give you a lot of credibility in an issue. And then you can also have credibility through clarity. So if you think about somebody like Alex Epstein, who used to work at ARI and then went on to become a very well-known energy and environmental commentator, he didn't have any kind of traditional credentials except that he was able to explain these issues more clearly than anybody else in the world could. And that alone can buy you credibility. So those two things I knew how to help people with or at least knew what advice to give. But there were so many cases of people who I thought, yeah, genuinely helpful very credible, and yet they still didn't have an audience. They still hadn't solved visibility, and I didn't know how to solve it. So I've spent the last few years um, really studying the, the way in which people get on that initial list. How do people gain an audience as successful communicators of ideas of studying the literature on the science of attention, of working with some of the leading experts in marketing virality? And so what I want to do for the next 30 minutes or so is just share some of what I've learned. So here's the agenda. We're going to talk about the rules of attention. We're going to talk about specific tactics you can use in order to gain attention and not be boring. And then we're going to talk about some ways in which um, objectivists face some unique challenges here. All right. So what is attention? Well, in the most general sense, anytime something's the object of awareness, it's part of attention. And so, objectivists love crows. So, you imagine I'm talking and a crow flies in, that's going to grab your attention, right? You can't help but notice it. Then there's what we can think of as short attention. This is when we choose to pay attention to something for a duration of time. So, the crow flies in and you guys go, "Well, that's a cool crow, but I really want to hear what Don has to say. You direct your attention towards me. That's short attention. And then there's what we can think of as long attention. So this isn't constant attention, it's enduring attention. So, like, here's the rapper Jay-Z. Nobody's walking around constantly thinking about Jay-Z. It's one of his 99 problems. (laughs) But whenever he puts out a new album or releases a press release, it's going to make news. And so if you think then about the ingredients of what does it take to get on that list of impactful intellectuals, From the attention perspective, you have to be able to grab, hold, and maintain attention. Grab, hold, and maintain attention. And so how do we do that? Well, it's really simple, right? Just think about the examples I gave. We pay attention to something when we think there's values to be gained or threats that we have to avoid. So appeal to values, and you're done. Question time, right? (laughs) Does anybody see a problem with that? So here, let's do it this way. I'm gonna send out a tweet, and if I could text fast, I actually would do this live on stage. But I'm like, um, I send out a tweet that says, "Study objectivism; it's the key to happiness." Is this gonna like solve all of our marketing problems? Well, why not? I'm appealing to values. People want to be happy, and I'm saying, "Hey, I'm gonna give you the key to happiness." Yeah, I don't think that that would work either. And to get clear on why, let's take a different kind of example. So let's say. Uh, You guys have never heard of me, and I post online about the Don Watkins Fitness Plan Guide to Losing Weight and Gaining Muscle. Do you think people are going to be clicking on that link like, oh, my God, he's going to tell us how to lose weight and gain muscle? Well, why not? Because everybody in the world is saying that we can solve that problem. Why should I listen to you? And do you notice now what's the, the kind of chicken and egg problem we have? We have to appeal to values, and yet how are we going to get people's attention long enough to let us show, yeah, objectivism really is the key to happiness. That's the problem, like, to appeal to values, it seems like we already need to have people's attention. And so what's going to be the solution to this? Well, I think the solution comes down to realizing that the way in which we experience our values is emotions. And so what we're really trying to do to cut through the noise is you're making the emotional experience of paying attention to you valuable to the audience in and of itself, in addition to the values that you're, you're going to help them achieve. I mean, just think of this in the straightforward way. We pay attention to Ayn Rand because you read Atlas Shrugged and you're like riveted and gripped, right? It's a rewarding experience in and of itself, quite apart from the fact that it you know, leads you to change your life and be able to live in a completely new way. So that's what we have to do. We have to figure out how do we create the kind of emotions that make engaging with us rewarding, including emotions associated with the anticipation of values. So here's one emotion that you can tap into. Desire, does this solve a specific problem your audience is actively trying to solve? So let's stick with the fitness example. So obviously, Don's guide wouldn't work. That's total garbage. Here's a video on YouTube has over a million views, 10-minute abs after baby, eight diastis recti-safe ab exercises. So for those, oh, for those who don't know, um, diastis recti is kind of a separating of the ab muscles that can occur uh, after pregnancy, and it makes some exercises impossible, and then there's other exercises that can be really helpful for it. So what's going on here, the reason that this could get a million views, whereas my fitness Guide does nothing. In part, it's because it's solving a specific desire that the audience is actively trying to solve, where there's very few perceived alternatives. That's what's creating desire. So take something like Bayer. They come out with the first aspirin. And do you think people desired it when somebody said for the first time, hey, for a few pennies, I'll take away your headache? You bet. Like, Bayer, you're amazing. But is anybody excited about Bayer today? Not Ben, but the company. (laughs) No, because there's lots of perceived alternatives. So how does this apply in the realm of ideas? Well, think of books like The End of Faith or The Black Swan. Um, These were two blockbuster books in the intellectual space. So The End of Faith comes out in 2004. What people are grappling with is this idea of Islamic terrorism. And this is the first book saying, yeah, maybe the problem isn't just a few runaway terrorists, but there's something in religion itself that's creating problems like this. And so he's, he's addressing the, a, a world where people are grappling with terrorism and some people are suspicious of religion. And he's giving voice to that really for the first time on a grand scale. Or The Black Swan, this is a book about catastrophic risk. And it comes out in 2007 and definitely takes off in 2008. Anybody remember what was going on at that time? The worst financial crisis you know, in, 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 uh, certainly in my lifetime. And so people are grappling with how do we think about something like this, and this is really the, the first book that is right there s- speaking to that kind of issue. And so if those books had come out say in 2010, 2015, I don't think they would have been success- as successful because people weren't really thinking about Islamic terrorism, they weren't really thinking about financial crises, and to the extent they were, by that point there was a million books on atheism, There's a million books on the financial crisis. And so Uh, You might think, well, Watkins, didn't you come out with the first book that you and Yoran created on the inequality crusade when that was like the issue and everybody had bought a gazillion copies of Tomah Piketty's book that they never read? And that's true, and indeed that was part of, Yaron and I really rushed as fast as we could to write that book because we knew, let's take advantage of being, you know, first uh, to criticize this. But we we had a little problem, which is the book came out in late 2016. And does anybody remember what happened to the conversation in 2016? By the time the book came out, nobody was talking about inequality. They were talking about Trump and they were talking uh, about immigration. And so, it's really that sweet spot of the problem people are trying to solve very few perceived solutions allows you to tap into desire. Curiosity, does this raise a question that people want answered? I'm really fascinated by the power of curiosity, like the fact that we stay up late on a work night to read a book just to figure out how it's going to end, right? Or, um, you know, that you see a headline that you know is clickbait, but you just have to know which actor Millie Bobby Brown is dating. The answer will shock you. (laughs) And the reason curiosity is so powerful is that it's mental hunger. And just as hunger is a signal of an unmet need for food, mental hunger, that's an a signal of an unmet need for knowledge and so if you can raise a question that the audience either is already asking themselves or once they hear it they really want to know the answer now you've got their attention so like my most viral article was one called america before the welfare state and i think part of what people were responding to was it raised this question in their mind that most people it never really occurs to them there was a time before a welfare state it's like yeah what was going on there and so it was that kind of curiosity that um, drove the reading of it. So I think a good way to kind of build up your curiosity muscles, pay attention to what you find compelled to click on and listen to uh, as a result of curiosity. So like these are just some headlines that I thought, like, I have to read these articles. I just reached 100,000 followers. Here is my advice to new writers. How the Uber economy is killing innovation, prosperity, and entrepreneurship. Why I quit a $450,000 engineering job at Netflix, the two most dismissive words in the Internet, the man who gets paid to watch The Simpsons. And I'm worried that everybody's like, oh, I've got to find out, like, who's watching The Simpsons. So don't Google it later. All right. So fascination. Does this show people something they've never seen before? Uh, the marketer Seth Godin talks about, like, you go on a family vacation, you're driving down the road and you go, hey, kids, look, a cow. But, you know, 10 minutes later, you don't even notice the cows. You've seen one, you've seen them all. And then you see a purple cow. You're going to point that out, right? It's remarkable in the literal sense of something that you would make a remark about. And that's because, like, as beings who survive through knowledge, novelty indicates there's new potential knowledge here. And so one of the things we can do is how do we give people something that they've never seen before? This is the most successful guy on YouTube, Mr. Beast. And his whole shtick is, let me come up with an idea that's going to give people something they've never seen before. And he gets over, regularly over 100 million views on his videos. So I mean, some of my favorites are, I put a million Orbeez in my friend's backyard, gets 157 million views. Um, I gave people $1 million, but only one minute to spend it. So it's just these things where people go, oh my god, I've never seen that before. Now you might be asking yourself, all right, is this clickbait? And one of my favorite scenes from The Simpsons is Bart's running for class president, and he and Homer come up with this sign that says, Sex, now that I have your attention, vote for Bart. That's clickbait, that's a false promise. So it's grabbing attention and not delivering. But if you deliver or over-deliver, that's not clickbait, that's just good marketing. All right, surprise. Does this say something counterintuitive, counter-narrative, or otherwise unbelievable? So counterintuitive is um going to be something like if you want to if you want to like succeed in academia do a, a, an experiment that leads to a counterintuitive result and like it doesn't have to be true guys uh, and you will get a lot of attention so like maybe you've heard hey after seventy thousand dollars, more money doesn't lead to more happiness counterintuitive result not even true and everybody hears about it counter-narrative is something where it's just going against what everybody else is saying. So like it's, you know, it's the first weeks of the Ukraine war and if you wrote something that said the best way to avoid World War III is a no-fly zone, it's something that's likely to get attention because it's going against what everybody else is saying. And then just any kind of surprise, anything new uh, and unexpected is going to get people's attention. So if you're going to write a book on ethics, you can call it the virtue of selfishness. Arousal, not that kind. Well, yeah, that kind too. But more broadly, it's, does this evoke strong feelings, especially high arousal emotions? So it turns out any emotion, aside from boredom, is very likely to grab people's attention and get them engaged. But emotions that are high arousal are associated with sharing in a way that low arousal emotions aren't. So if we're actually concerned with virality, then it's things like awe and inspiration, humor and amusement, excitement, anger, anxiety, alarm, that's what's gonna drive sharing much more than if you're tapping into contentment, sadness, or relaxation. So that's basically the core point that I wanted to make, which is we become interesting when we can give people an emotional experience that makes paying attention to us rewarding for its own sake and also makes them emotionally anticipate further values to be gained. So now I wanna get more tactical and talk about what I call the five S's of not being boring. I'm going to use um, a lot of examples from uh, Alex Epstein, whom I mentioned before, and part of the reason I want to do this, aside from the fact that I just know them better because I worked with him for so long, is um, I want us to see that this works for objectivists, and it can be done with integrity. It doesn't have to be cheesy or anything like that. Uh, And I, I just remember we did media training years and years ago at ARI, and the guy came in and was giving us all this advice. And I remember we were looking at him skeptically like, He doesn't understand what we're trying to do in promoting a philosophy. But no, this stuff really works and and can be done, I think, um, with a lot of integrity. So the five S's are stunts, stories, slogans, stats, and snapshots. So stunts. One of the first lessons I learned from Alex was don't comment on the story, be the story, because everybody has an opinion. But if you are the story, that's you are the kind of center of attention there. One of the most straightforward ways, though not usually the best uh, kind of stunt, is a debate. A debate is taking ideas and injecting drama and confrontation into it. And if you look, for instance, at Euron's most viral stuff, it's the debates he did. The way that Alex became famous amongst the fossil fuel industry was a debate he did with Bill McKibben. Um, But there's all kinds of other stunts. This picture is uh, Alex went to the People's Climate March in New York City and basically is... 100,000 people were marching with fossil fuels have got to go. He stood facing them with an I love fossil fuel sign. Um, The the, Zuby, if you've heard of this guy, he becomes famous because of stunt where Joe Rogan sees him break the women's world record in weightlifting. Now, Zuby's a dude. The whole idea was he was satirizing that you can just declare your gender identity and now you get to compete, you know, in women's weightlifting. Stories. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because, look, we all know we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the power of stories that we've experienced through Ayn Rand. One of the most impactful parts of Alex's first book was a story he tells about a baby who died who was born in the Gambia premature, but there was no incubator available because there was no reliable energy. And many people have, like, named that as the thing that stuck with them the most in his work. And the real key about stories is you really want them to be simple and you want the message to be built into them. Because what you really are after is people to repeat the story, and in repeating the story, you want it to be inevitable that they convey the message you want to convey. Slogans. This is every speaker's, like, horror moment, which is you give a talk, people come up afterwards, and they're like, that was amazing. You're like, awesome, what'd you get out of it? And you get that blank stare. This is not your fault. This is our fault. And so what you want to do is be able to make your messages stick. And so slogans are a way to do that by using things like repetition, alliteration, metaphors, visual language. My all-time favorite example of this is Steve Jobs announcing the first iPod, a thousand songs in your pocket. This was in a, you know, we had the CD Walkman before that. It was 12 songs and they don't even fit in your pocket. So like this is amazing. Uh, Here's a slogan that Alex has. We don't take a safe climate and make it dangerous. We take a dangerous climate and make it safe. You'll never forget that once you hear it. Stats. Usually data is boring. People come out and like, let me name five studies and how, you know, this affects GDP by 2.3%. Like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you find, like, a big picture compelling fact, that can be unforgettable. Sam Harris was uh, debating Ben Affleck on the Bill Maher show about, like, is is there a real problem in Islam or are you just kind of like blaming a whole religion for a handful of bad people? And this was in the wake of the Danish cartoon crisis where some cartoonists drew pictures mocking the prophet Muhammad and then they got slaughtered. And so as Affleck is on his high horse, Sam Harris points out 78% of British Muslims support prosecuting the Danish cartoonists. That's the kind of fact I'm talking about. Or Alex is very famous for this, uh, citing this statistic. We're told the climate's catastrophic. In fact, over the last century, we've seen a 98% decline in climate-related deaths because of fossil-fueled civilization. That's the kind of statistic that people will never forget and that can change the way that they see the world or think about an issue. And then finally, snapshots. And here I'm I'm referring to anything visual, images, cartoons, memes, and um, people respond to visuals really well. So this is like a slide we created for one of Alex's talks where he's always making the point that um, we always hear about the negative environmental impacts of fossil fuels. We don't hear about the negative environmental impacts, which are often much worse of something like the mining that goes into rare earth for solar and wind. And this is just by making it visual, it becomes more indelible. So those are the five S's. And the, uh, most of what I want to say about this, there's a lot more that is involved in being interesting. One thing I just want to mention, we can talk more in the Q&A if we, there's time, is that authenticity. One of the mistakes we make is by, as speakers and as intellectuals and as writers It's not like we need to add a whole bunch of tactics to what we do. It's usually that we're overly guarded and we have to like be more of ourselves and inject more of our personality into our work. And when we do that, we can really captivate and connect with an audience. Even if on some of the technical things, I fumble through my words or something like that, none of that matters if I get the sense of a real person who's, you know, um, somebody that I wanna spend time with or spend time with at least intellectually. All right, so let's then turn to a unique challenges of objectives, because I do think we have a few. So one is that people filter out Ayn Rand. If maybe you've had this experience of like you're talking about an idea and then somebody goes, oh, that's really cool, and then like it comes up that that came from Ayn Rand, they're like, oh, never mind, not interested. So there is a, an Ayn Rand filter out there. But that's not everybody. Many people are super fascinated by Ayn Rand. So for instance, our biggest videos are, Ayn Rand's Mike Wallace interview on ARI's channel. But that doesn't translate into interest in other objectivists very often. So people are fascinated by her. They're not necessarily fascinated by experts on her. And so, you know, whereas we have like a million views in the Mike Wallace interview or something close to that, you know, I think the, the next biggest one is Euron's debate. Um, with, and like most of us, you know, aren't getting like the hundreds of thousands, most of the videos like that i put up, you know, you get a few thousand. You're like, all right, so it's it, the, the fascination with Ayn Rand doesn't automatically translate to objectivists. And then finally, when it does translate into interest in objectivists who aren't Ayn Rand, you could go viral multiple times, but your audience often doesn't grow the way that you would expect from that. And one reason why is that there's a lot of, there can be a lot of churn. So what happens is, oh, I heard this guy say some amazing stuff about inequality or the welfare state, and then it's the next week oh my God, he's pro-abortion, and he's anti-religion. I'm you know, I'm out of here. So, I'm not going to give you the solution to this problem, but I'm going to talk about a solution that has worked, and that is specialized. That when that, if you think about the most successful objectivists, they've solved like one kind of problem that people want solved. So, it's I've helped people think clearly about energy and defended the fossil fuel civilization we depend on. It's, I'm transforming uh, American education. I'm teaching you how to love art and literature more. I'm helping you become more productive. It's when you're, you are focused on solving this kind of problem for people. Suddenly what happens is you're able to kind of overcome those three challenges. So one is the anti-Ayn Rand filter isn't there because it's not, here's the objectivist approach to education, it's here's great schools, here's great articles about education. You credit Ayn Rand, you certainly credit her when and as appropriate, but what happens when you do it that way is it changes the anti-Ayn Rand filter in a real positive way, which is now instead of being, oh, I'm checking out, it's wow, this person who's established themselves as helpful, thoughtful, they're you know, doing something amazing in education, they're crediting her maybe I need to revisit and rethink the way that people overcome that Ayn Rand biases. Somebody they admires gives her credit. And then um, it, the, uh, you're obviously overcoming the part that people aren't uh, interested in objectivists who aren't Ayn Rand because they're interested in you because you're helping them solve a particular problem that they're concerned with. And it also helps with the churn issue because the more that you're specialized, the more that people can compartmentalize in effect. And they say, yeah well like look I love this guy's work on energy and I know he has some weird views about religion but whatever I can ignore that because I'm, I'm here for the energy stuff and you can see then this that it, and if it, it explains some of the challenges that we've had at ARI in the past where I think initially the idea was we're going to house a bunch of very effective public intellectuals with mass audiences and I think that can be done but it's very hard because properly Ayn Rand is front and center of everything that we do and, and so you're, you, in effect, get uh, a very difficult challenge in trying to present, I'm solving this one problem and I want you to I'm build everything around that. You're kind of getting the fire hose. And so the thing that ARI is world class at and the thing that has really excited me as soon as I heard Tal talk about it last year was this idea of we're going to take the thing that we're most world class at which is training people who are interested in Ayn Rand, and we're going to triple down on it and create the world's best school, right? And I think that is, I'm so excited to talk about it tonight, uh, or to hear Tal talk about it tonight. Um, But one of the reasons I wanted to mention this is because if this was at all helpful to you and you want to build an intellectual career and you want to get attention, you want to know how to use, portray objectivist ideas in an effective way, this is the place to go. You'll get content like this, you'll get content like you're hearing, at OCON this week. And so, I hope you will try to win the attention game because we need to actually make an impact on the culture. And so, definitely, uh, I hope to see you all in a Niner and University class soon. Thank you. <laughs> all right. So, we have a mic for questions, and we have some live stream questions, or we might have them. Uh, so. We'll find out. All right, Nikos.
2: Okay.
3: First of all, thanks. That's super, super important. The question is, what is the margin of error when you want to take a, to gain attention? For example, on Twitter, you'll have to risk. You'll have to do things that maybe do not really fit the image of the intellectual or of the institution you you represent or whatever. So, I would be tempted to say risk, and unless it's catastrophic, you know, who cares? But how do you test the waters in terms of what is
1: too much or what is too, what is too much towards the edge? I don't think about it as risk exactly. I do think it takes experimentation to find what's going to work for you. And you should be pushing yourself out of a comfort zone. But part of it is you, you're, you should be concerned with is this consistent with what i want like how i want to present myself so it can't be i'm going to embrace a tactic just to get attention like i would never do the you know women's weightlifting championship thing because there's something that about that i find like a little dupe like i wouldn't take somebody seriously and i don't take zuby seriously but he's a musician mostly right so it kind of fit his image so i think you have to try to integrate those two things but there is a bit of pushing yourself outside your comfort zone and what you're what you're really looking for i mentioned kind of offhand the authenticity thing is how could I be more of myself? And really it, what it comes down to is how do I think about my audience and try to give them an amazing experience when they listen to me, right? So, I mean, like I tried to practice what I preach in this talk. Like I wanted you guys to show up and not just go, that was helpful, but like that was fun. I'm glad, like I'm glad I spent my morning doing that. And it's really that kind of thinking that you really need to engage in. Thanks, Thanks Nikos. Um, so, on the, the point about specialization and this churn, I, when I think about Rand herself, she certainly didn't do that. Um, and I w- I'm wondering, like, it seems like one of, the, one of our advantages is this broad, sweeping, integrated view. How do you think we should sort of balance that? Like, is this is actually something I've noticed in Alex's work. Like, it seems like there are opportunities to tie into something else that he leaves aside intentionally. It seems like it's a strategic decision, but how do we think about the possibility of having that be our edge? Well, that's why I say it's a solution, not the solution. Indeed, I'm more of a generalist at heart. It's one reason that I was attracted to philosophy, is like, oh, this sheds light on everything, and I'm interested in everything, and I want to talk about everything. Um, With Ayn Rand, but you have to take seriously, she became famous as a novelist. And then it's, we want to know about this worldview that you've developed. Um, But it's that, like, in a sense, she was specialized. She was specialized in writing these heroic, inspiring novels. And then it's, now we want to learn what you have to say. And so you can definitely do it. You can, like, think about somebody like Jordan Peterson. Part of what I think people are attracted to is every issue, I'm bringing a new, interesting perspective on it. So it can be done. My only point is that it's harder, and it's harder to advise people on how to do it. But essentially, I would say one thing is you, have to be an interesting person, a fascinating person. It can't just be you're very good at articulating another thinker's ideas. Right. There has to be something you're bringing to the table that makes me go, this guy or this woman, like, I need to spend time with them. Yeah. OK, thank you. And quick question. What's your slogan for this talk? <laughs> you're a jerk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll be a jerk, too, and recommend that you add another S to your alliteration you know, maybe super good alliterations, the six S's. Uh (laughs) Um, I'm wondering if you can, first of all, I'm super thrilled to see this stuff um, being (laughs) talked about. I've been in marketing for a while and it's awesome to see it uh, at Ocon. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk about common pitfalls. You mentioned something about taking responsibility. If someone doesn't remember your slogan, that's your fault, not the audience's fault. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what are, in your practice, what are some common pitfalls or excuses or things like that that you've seen um, that we might be able to learn better how to lean into those things and instead of saying, "Yeah, you know, that's too hard, to
1: just try harder. I mean, the most common thing I see is just people don't give it enough attention. It's kind of like an afterthought. So, the way this will come up is like people will come to me and go, hey, I wrote this book, how do I now market it? It's like, no, you needed to be thinking about that when you started writing the book. And look, I get it, I write books just because I like to write books and like then I have the same problem. But it's like, no, the, the sales has to be embedded in the thinking. So if I'm writing an article, it can't just be, I'm really interested in this. If I want people to read it, if that's my actual goal, why, why are they going to care? Why is this going to be fascinating? So, it, like Mr. Beast, part of what he does is it's not just he comes up with great titles for videos, it's that he starts with the titles. Yeah. He said, what is going to be the title that people will go, holy, I have to, like, I got to watch this. And so it's not thinking about it enough. And then, um, I think there is a little bit often of when there, of, there can be a temptation to, in effect, say, this is too uncomfortable. And, but I'm going to justify it as, no, that, like, that's not what a proper intellectual does. Right. Um, I think like, the, you have to embrace part of being an intellectual if you want to be impactful on a mass, massive scale. I'm not talking about like you want to be a really successful scholar in academia. That's a different problem to solve. But if you want to be you know, a public intellectual of any sort, that, like, you really have to take seriously. One of my jobs is to push myself to figure out ways to gain attention. Got
3: it. Thank you. Hey, Don. Hi.
1: Hey.
3: Um, like, your talk was mostly about how to gain and how to maintain people's attention. Um, however, a question that I think is preliminary to this is, what is the type of, uh, of attention that you, as an Intellectual want to direct towards yourself, for example, and this this is not directly applicable to intellectual work, but um, there is this book, the the 48 laws of power. Not that I recommend it, um, but he mentioned one thing that I think is correct, and it is that there is people who try to direct attention towards themselves by doing let's say negative things right that are just discussed so often that 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 actually constantly keeps them in this in this focus of uh tension so i am curious to know like what is this let's say positive type of attention that you want to direct towards
1: yourself well let me say i mean one reason i think objectivists struggle with this is that we tend not to be second handers and so the idea of even seeking attention like that's not naturally how we think and not naturally how we function right but if you think about um when is it legitimate to gain attention well if i create a blender i need to sell the blender i need to get people's attention there's nothing second-handed about that i have something that i'm trying to sell so we have ideas that are crucial to our lives and the lives of anybody who values their life or could value their lives and values freedom and so it's in that sense that like we really have to push ourselves i think to like take seriously this challenge of no you should be trying to get attention that's part of what you need to do to create an impactful movement but yes we shouldn't be agnostic about how one goes about it and that's why i say you have to really what you want is the attention should be should be directed or tied intimately to the values you're trying to offer. It shouldn't just be some external thing. So like, yeah, it could be you're really great at like juggling chainsaws, and it's going to be, I'm going to recite Galt's speech while juggling chainsaws. That might be cool, like if if somebody's going to do that. But what you're really looking for is how do I present the ideas I care about in a way that's interesting. So it's not about how do I just arbitrarily grab some attention. It's how do I integrate those two things. How do I make the experience of engaging with uh, of people engaging with my ideas really um, valuable and as an experience quite apart from like the more later results, hopefully they'll get from using the ideas in the world. Thank you.
2: Hi, Don. Um, in my own social sarc- circles, I find it extremely difficult to engage on discussions about ideas and, in the, and stimulate independent thought on them. And looks like they are uh, sometimes uh, often skeptical about ideas or concrete bound and not willing to think about abstract integrations that can uh, direct their, their actions. So uh, it looks like it's, I infer that it's uh, something in the culture as well that is, is is kind of a resistance to ideas. So I, I would like to understand your, your thoughts about that and, and how, how to overcome, I think, the habit and, and change the habit to think more about principles, think more about ideas, and, and people start giving importance to that. Because this, I think, is a very challenging, uh, at least for me personally.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's no question that We live in, like, a very non-intellectual world, and increasingly so. On the other hand, I always think about it as, like, that can never be an excuse. Like, nothing can ever be an excuse. Everything that's a problem is a problem I have to solve and take responsibility for solving. So, like, if people aren't engaging my material, it's not, well, they're not good enough for my material. It's, no, my material's not good enough. I mean, assuming it's the audience I'm trying to reach. So, for instance, in, in a book I'm working on now, like, I'm explicitly aiming it at, the best young minds, who, the people who are intellectual. So I'm not trying to connect with that person who's not going to e- even want to ask philosophic questions. But that's a deliberate choice. So it's whatever audience you're after, you just have to think, what's the reality of where that audience is? And then how do I get them to where I want them to go? And it's a hard problem to solve. Like I couldn't just give you the answer of, like, oh, do these three things, and people will suddenly think in principle. But you can certainly get people to think better by um, the way you communicate like you can in effect make them better thinkers. This is one of the things that we worked a lot on at when I worked at the Center for Industrial Progress is like, how do you in effect in, you know, how do you make other people better thinkers uh, about energy and then help them uh, reach the right conclusions by giving them the right facts in the right way and so on. So I do think it's a solvable problem, but we have to take responsibility for that problem. We can't just like, you know, say, Well, if we lived in a better culture, it would be easier to fight for better ideas. That's true, but then nobody would need us.
0: Thank you. Hi. um, I had a question just about um, uh, communicating intellectual ideas directly as the product that you're, as your principal product versus the idea of having something else that's like a vehicle for ideas. Um, Like if you look at Ayn Rand, for example, I mean her career is kind of unique because she was sort of like basically an artist and then intellectual after that, and she has sort of had the turning point, you know. Um, but for other objectivists or people who are interested in objectivism or applying it to a specific area, like, are, how do you, how do you think about like how much the intellectual ideas are actually the direct thing that you're working on and trying to market to the market to the public versus like, you know, someone that, who is interested in being an artist, for example, or or something that was perhaps not quite intellectual itself, but then that became a way to communicate the ideas. Or maybe they're a specialist in something specific, and then as they sort of grow their career, they sort of generalize and start talking more about philosophy in general and and more broad principles rather than their specialty. Yeah, I
1: mean, both are really valuable, right? Like If you talk to people here over the age of 40, you'll be struck by how many of them were introduced to Ayn Rand through Rush. And just, like, they saw her name, you know, dedicated in 20, what is it, 2112 or something? Um, And, oh, I got to explore this, right? So it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, But in that case, it's, you have to be interesting as a musician, right? Like, you have to, like, be somebody doing something new, cool, in music, and then you say, oh, by the way, like, I get so much from Ayn Rand. Boom, that's powerful marketing right there. What I was trying to emphasize, though, was more of the person who, no, I want to promote objectivist ideas. Like, I want that to be my career, and, 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 and so it th- and there the thing is you have to make the pr- uh, presentation of the ideas themselves rewarding and exciting and interesting for people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the more of you who are good at anything, that's great. Like, I, I mean, I, I dabble, I'm dabbling in fiction myself right now, and like I think the more people just doing cool stuff, Part of what it does is it just makes the movement better, right, because there's so much fun, cool stuff going on. But it also makes it more attractive and creates incredible marketing for outsiders. I mean, it's really nice that, you know, we have Mark Pellegrino, who's an incredible actor, and also really serious about understanding and talking about objectivism. Like, that, that's amazing, even if his acting isn't like, oh, this is the objectivist approach to acting or something, right? It's, no, he's fascinating as an actor, and then I want to hear what he has to say about life. Yeah, so go get famous as a musician. You'll you'll help us, Gabriel. <laughs> he is going to do that. So,
0: hi. Um, I was wondering, just out of curiosity, what you think about like any publicity is good publicity? And I don't mean like doing terrible things for attention. I mean like, I follow Alex, and I see people saying like despicable things about him, and it sucks. But in terms of like maintaining attention and staying like, in the public's eye, it works really well. And, you know, like, I was going to run onto your stage for $20, but I was going to risk being disrespectful. And, like, I'm sure that I would, like, people would be surprised, but they would also be like, who is this kid? You know? So I was just wondering what you think about
1: that. That was my test to see were people actually paying attention to this. <laughs> um, I mean, look, it's, it's hard to even have a view of, like, is all publicity good publicity? The point is, if you get attention, it goes with the territory that there's going to be negative things. I don't think you should court them. Um, and I don't think that, like, like, I don't think it was a positive thing that the Washington Post tried to ruin Alex's yeah. life, even if their side effect is he was able to turn it into something that probably helped book sales. Um, but it's just a reality that you have to confront that the more successful you are, I mean, frankly, it's one reason why I'm not particularly interested in becoming, like, you know, building my mass audience anymore is, like, I like my privacy. Like, I just want to like, sit at home, read and write, and not have to deal with those kinds of things, um, which can be really disruptive and painful, and it takes a certain kind of person to embrace that as the cost of doing business. Um, but it, it, that's the way I see it. It's, just an, it's inevitable, but I wouldn't court it for sure.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, my question is, do you think that as somebody who might want to be an objectivist intellectual, the value of going a traditional route of like just going to school, you know, just studying, publishing papers and then being a professor or whether, you know, you get employed or not. Do you think that going that traditional route is still has the value in that diminished in like and should you be more focused now on getting the public's attention in a, you know, more like I want to speak to the masses in a viral way, like has the value of going a more traditional approach really diminished? Like, is that something that, you know, you shouldn't be focused on as much anymore?
1: Well, the question is, what do you mean by value, right? Because we could talk about the value to the movement of different things, but we're talking about people's careers, and the only value that should matter is what are you passionate about? What route do you want to go? And if you want to be an academic, like, I don't care if that's worse for the movement, like, be an academic and love your career. Believe me, that has all kinds of benefits. Um, Tactically, like what has a bigger impact like i'm not even prepared to say necessarily that like oh if we had a jordan Peterson of objectivism that would be better than like 10 people like greg and Tara and Ankar doing amazing work that's going to inform what we all do i don't know that for sure um i what what i am what i would say is that it's not obviously true what objectivists used to insist on 20 years ago which was oh what we have to do is change academia I think you can bypass academia in terms of what should be the tactics of the movement. And indeed, I think part of what Ayn Rand University is doing is in effect, bypass. like we don't have to take over Harvard. We're just going to make an educational program that's going to like knock everybody's socks off and like attract the best young minds, right? Um, So that's, that's how I think about it, which is like don't pick your career because like you think this is good for the objectivist movement but if you're if if you are passionate about making change like making change and winning over a mass audience like that's an incredibly important thing to do and you just have to decide like what do i want from my career okay thank you thank you don um in your talk you didn't mention audience selection directly and i assume it's probably because the five s's apply in general Mm -hmm. but since you talked about it a bit in responding to questions i'd be curious what your experiences in terms of success or failure audience selection, and any advice you might have for people who are looking to go a public intellectual route. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you raised this, because I was thinking about it in an, uh, a previous question. The, I'll say one thing about it. There's a lot that we could talk about there. Um, well, I'll say two things. One is, again, I think it should be driven by what you want. Like, What kind of audience do you want to reach? Um, and sometimes, you don't even get to decide. right? Like, you just kind of resonate with a certain kind of person. And, like, awesome, like, ride that wave. Um, What I would say, though, is I really take seriously quality over quantity. Now, there's, you can make too much of that division, because part of how you can get to the quality is through quantity. But what I always worry about is when you sacrifice the quality people in the way that you pursue quantity. And I think ARI is very careful about like not doing that. We think a lot about like, all right, how do we reach as many people as possible, but without turning off the best young minds? Because often those th- sometimes those things really can be at tension, you know, particularly like you, you look at and go, oh man, if I work with this organization, I'll be able to get a YouTube video with a million views. It's yeah, and you discredit yourself in the mind of every smart person who doesn't want to like be associated with religious wackos. Right? So, like, you have to really, uh, so that's the number one thing I am concerned with when thinking about audiences. Like, never will I sacrifice the potential, like, next transformative mind to, like, getting higher hits on a YouTube video. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. I Have a wonderful conference. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe
0: on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to Einran.org.